Welcome back to Imago Gay. I know we have missed you all. It's been about a month now. We have uh, been going through some transitions, which we're excited to share with you. And we have slowed down the number of podcasts just because it hasn't been sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could do launch of season two, part B. <laughs> yes, launch of season two, part B, <laughs> as we slow trickle our way through the year. I mean, if you guys want to hear more of us more than once a month, let us know. We know we, <laughs> we definitely are willing, but we've been having some exciting news and maybe we can use our own experience of what we're going through right now to relate to others who are in transitions. So I think transitions are understandably difficult, or I'll say they, they have this both and of being exciting filled with opportunity. It's kind of fun to look into the horizon of a transition, but they can also be very scary and challenging and so many things have to get done. And it always symbolizes a goodbye and a hello, right? So you're saying you're losing something in the process of a transition, although you might be gaining something. It's one of those things, I remember somebody shared with me a while ago, about how spring is kind of like this violent season. And we are in the process of spring, Mm. right? When you get into a a winter or a season, it's that season for a while and things are homeostasis. But then when the change starts to happen, it's kind of violent in some ways where it's like the weather changes and you can get storms and rain. Is it hot? Is it cold? And you're not sure uh, where it's going to land, right? You're like, oh man, is it, is it going to be hot today? Is it going to be cold today? There's a lot of things that you don't expect as the seasons change. And I think that we're, we're matching the calendar seasons <laughs> in our own life with some upcoming events. And maybe you want to share a little bit about what we have on the horizon. Well, it's funny because a year ago, a little less than a year ago, we were sitting at this restaurant overlooking Big Sur and just felt overwhelmed with the beauty that was surrounding us. It's called Neptunes. If anybody knows it or wants to look it up, it's such a beautiful spot. Very. And We were just sitting at this table overlooking the mountains and the water. I think when you soak in nature that way, or at least for me, I was tapping into just some serenity. Yeah. (laughs) And so it was one of those moments in life where I was like, what am I doing? Why why can't I have more of this Mm. in my everyday? Yeah. And I didn't say it as intentionally then, but... I just kind of spoke my heart's wish that that in years' time, we'd call this place home. Yeah, and we were overhearing this conversation of a waiter to oh, another yes. table. And basically, he was just on like a whim driving up the coast and had been driving for a while, like been living like the van life, I think, and stopped in Big Sur and was like, why don't I just live here? And interviewed for a job at this restaurant, got the job because he's pretty knowledgeable in like wine selections and stuff like that from his, he has like a background, his family or something. But he got the job and that's where he ended up staying. And it's like, 
that simple. He said, why don't I stay? And he got a job and he's there. Yeah. And, and, and also he was telling his story about how he fell in love with this corner of the world. Right. And everything that he was mentioning was just resonating. And we had only been there for the day. I mean, it, it, it's not like we spent a ton of time there, but yeah. it, it, it's a place that makes you wonder, what would it be like to live here full time? Right. And so we're not going to Big Sur, but we're going back to California. And that's where I grew up. And it's been... Moving, not just traveling. Moving. We are moving. We are (laughs) officially leaving Boston. Yeah. And I am so excited that you fell in love with California Mm -hmm. uh, because it's some place that I do love. And it's one of those places that once you're in Michigan and in Boston for a while, it's so different than being in that environment back in California. So we're moving. Yeah. (laughs) But we still have a lot of things up in the air. The transition happened a lot faster than I think we both anticipated. Yeah, there was no way of knowing that it was going to happen so quick. Yeah. Because California, I don't know why, I had only been there two times when I realized this feels like home. Mm. And... It kind of combined my worlds. I had lived in Michigan for a big portion of my life, and I grew up in Puerto Rico. So just kind of meshed these two worlds where nature, tropics, but also the pine trees of Michigan were all in one yeah. place. And and then the people, I think the people was what made the difference. Yeah, West culture is definitely very different than East East Coast culture, I know. (laughs) And we still have a lot of unknowns. But maybe we can talk a little bit about what sparked the transition. Yeah. So I can I tell from my perspective first? (laughs) 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 Because I'm just I'm just curious if this resonates with you because when we talk about transitions, I think one thing that I've been trying to hold myself to is not staying in relationships to the point that they get bitter, like knowing the right time to leave. And it sparks you to take a journey and to figure out how do I fix this or is there someplace else that I need to go? And I think we began to follow those kind of yearnings of saying like something's not exactly what I was looking for. Like there are different areas that led us on a journey of seeking a new homeland, so to speak. I think... We have this honeymoon period with Boston because during the summertime, it it's a really special place. Very magical. The it, weather is great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sunny and we have a great view and we're close to a lot of the attractions. Sit by the pool. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in the summertime, we forget <laughs> and are not as disgruntled with the city. Yeah. But... I think winter hits and all of a sudden you're kind of cocooned and going from your apartment to your workspace and everything else just requires this extra layer, literally, of effort because you have to, for for us, we live within walking distance of most places. So I think getting into the cold weather even with our amazing jackets and boots and gear yeah, to brace it, it's, it's just very discouraging. And I think we both thrive in outdoor, being outdoors and being around people. So it could just get very claustrophobic 
Yeah. And you mentioned that not realizing how much nature is a part of your spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I think California definitely has a better like city to nature ratio, or at least we would be able to access it more than we do here. Well, here's the thing. I think my spirituality, in the absence of my Seventh-day Adventist package, when I gave up the space that was the container, the function of church is to create that space of gathering and finding God and community. Nature really took on a big part of how I felt connected, Mm. both to the sacred and to others and to myself. Yeah. I know connection to be the very definition of spirituality. So yeah. just started to realize that I needed to feel more breathiness and that I longed for spaciousness and openness and places that slowed down the beat for me. Yeah. And I think being in the mountains or just being in a car and a highway where there are where there's, there's music green. and just your thoughts and like it's so easy to just be in a meditative space. Yeah, and I just didn't realize that I positioned myself in the center of the city while convenient and efficient and very practical really functioned to eliminate or rob me of the spaces that felt like breaks in between even 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 the commute i think yes there's an advantage that to that i that i get to walk to work within 5 minutes yeah but i found myself even craving the time that my colleagues had to sit on a train for 20 minutes straight yeah, and, ha- and decompress and yeah. decompress and not have something else i think i didn't realize that i had shortened all of my tasks. So now that I, I can accomplish a million things in one day, but where is my pause? I just found myself really longing for a different rhythm in general yeah. and a different scenery. I think transitions are, are really hard for me. And I think that that's something I'm trying to get better at recognizing early. I think the times where I have been hurt the most as I've stayed too long in the uncomfortableness at a time when I should have moved on already. And and I I liken that even to my situation with the church, staying institutionally at a time when we were growing apart. It was something that I've also heard from other people who, especially LGBTQ, they're saying, I just stayed too long. I stayed too long in this relationship. I stayed closeted for too long. And then it made the relationship bitter to the point that now I have a trauma that I have to undo. Mm-hmm. And I think transitions are so scary because you don't know the way forward. I do think it has sparked for me a bit of existential crisis, and we'll talk about that in the moment. But just going back to transitions can be so scary because of the unknown. And sometimes, like they say, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And wanting to get better at just needing a soft tap on my shoulder and not a shove out the door (laughs) before I move forward. Yeah. I think you're saying some people stick around in situations that they outgrow or that no longer benefit them 
simply because it's too scary to face the what if yep. of a different scenario than, than to at least know what you're working with, even if you're not happy. And I, I'm that person. Like I, most of my relationships, I can look back and I've told myself this for almost like six, seven years now, which is have a light foot. I know transitions are hard for me. I know I will hunker down because I just don't want to face the unknown. I know I will let myself endure hardship that I don't have to (laughs) just because transitions are that frightening. You seem to be able to transition a little bit easier than myself. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Because I think you're talking about something that I actually encounter a lot Mm -hmm. in my patients' Getting a new diagnosis or having an injury that completely alters the way that you've known to live is is a transition that sometimes happens with some warning and there's time to prepare and sometimes comes out of the blue and it's shocking. Yeah. But I, I, I don't actually know many people that find transitions easy. I think people adopt different coping mechanisms that make them seem more resilient, right? I think for me, of course, there's a lot of excitement around a transition. That's not to say that that kind of attitude has not been learned because of heartache from the many times I've had to move. Just because And this is what I have to be careful of doing. I have to be careful that I'm not so focused on what's coming next and so hyped about what's coming next that I delay my grief and then it hits me two years after the transition. And part of my job sometimes is helping people accept that it's normal to have some resistance and that it's also normal to be so focused on the future because it's hard to face what you are losing yes so i think whether whether you're the person crying because there's a transition or the person who cries two years later (laughs) (laughs) wide-eyed and excited there's some naming that needs to happen and some validating as well so yeah i can relate to that i sometimes am surprised at how out of touch with my emotions I am. I was talking to my therapist this week and I was like, yeah, I think I've just been grouchy lately. (laughs) She's like, yeah, I saw that you've kind of gone up in some of these markers. What's been going on? I'm like, nothing. I just, I can't pinpoint it. (laughs) She's like, well, is there anything new happening? I was like, oh, I might be moving in six weeks. (laughs) And she's like, oh, really? (laughs) And I'm like, Yeah, but like, that's not it, because I'm surely handling all of that just fine. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not, I wasn't. I think it was coming out and me being grouchy, because I wasn't facing the sadness that I felt and the grief that I felt and how overwhelmed I felt with like, all the little things that I need to get done. I got to get movers, I got to get a new apartment, I got to put in my two weeks notice, I got to, we got to pack this entire place up. I I, there's a part of me that says that's not something worth validating. That's not something stressful. I guess I, my stress tolerance has been so high at times that I have a hard time acknowledging 
the little things that are stressful because I invalidate myself and say like that that shouldn't stress you out like you're a big girl you can handle it just get it done Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not naming it like you're saying I think was the biggest problem because as soon as I started to open up and talk about how I felt about the transition like I have felt like astronomically better (laughs) well and as a person who is in relationship to you, I have also felt better. <laughs> it improved your relationship to yourself and my relationship with others. Yes. Yes. Something that you said that has been helpful in this transition has been let's make lateral movement and not horizontal movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as as a decedent affairs coordinator here in Boston, I, I kind of fell into this in a way that I'm unexpectedly using my MDiv degree to do something that I didn't really think about as a career. So going back to that existential crisis, I think there is still the grief of a lot of loss to think, man, I've lost four years of my life studying and obtaining a degree that I don't have a career for anymore, for various reasons. Like my own values have changed. I don't want to go into pastoral ministry. Even chaplaincy is not something that I desire as a career for my own reasons. And so it doesn't align with who I am anymore. Like I've changed and my values have changed. And to be left in a place where I don't have a career that's flexible enough to accommodate those changes and to think, where do I go from here? And how do I start over again? Um, and who do I become during this next step has been so overwhelming of a question that's been kind of in the back of my mind of how do I recreate myself in this next chapter of my life to be able to live a life that is not as filled with hardships as it was in the past has placed a lot of pressure to like say, well, my next step has to be a career change and an upward change financially. I'm getting older and I think there's also the expectation like I sh- as I age, I should be getting compensated more because I've, I've obviously have gained experience, life experience. I guess that's what people pay you for. <laughs> <laughs> but you had made a point of saying, why don't we just, instead of focusing on needing to add on to a transition that's already hard, the expectation of being new and better and everything else, how do we just recreate what we have here in a different city? Like lower the expectations to say, what if we're just at the same place that we were before? And I think in that thinking, there's an opportunity that might open up for me to do the scene affairs coordinating somewhere else. (laughs) Yes. I I, I think that's, that was a big part of our process was also, I think, when you start to dream about the life that you want or the things that you want out of life, you kind of clump your dreams all together, right? Mm -hmm. They live in this cloud. And I found that something, a change in the location that we lived was an improvement in it of itself, right? Because for the reasons that we shared earlier, Boston, I know we're going to remember the city fondly and romanticize what our life here has been like. And I'm glad that we get to leave at a time that would allow us to do that. 
you know, that we still have, we're parting on friendly terms. Yes. It's not a bitter divorce at this point. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's not. But we, I don't know if it was the winter. I don't know if it was just the cumulative effect of the way cities are structured and, and the kind of pace that they set. We were just feeling really exhausted and realizing that what felt right and cozy and the city that really nurtured our love and made it safe for us to find each other and grow in our relationships also became something that didn't quite fit as well. And I will say on top of that, we had been looking at different cities. Like we've been asking ourselves this question. We've known that we didn't want to do Boston long term, like yeah. like as far as like for the next 20 years. We thought maybe five. Yeah. We, three, three to five. We were shooting in that range. And I think a part of us has gotten to the age where we're like, man, we want to be able to put down roots. Where would we do this? We looked at Florida. We looked at possibly Atlanta. We've looked at all of these different cities. Kansas City even. But here's the thing. As an LGBTQ couple. Exactly. (laughs) There are very limited places in this world that we can live and feel comfortable about that. That would allow us to be together the way that Boston does. Exactly. And that was something that we had to factor in, that a lot of the places that we would feel comfortable and safe to be out on a date in public or holding hands in public or like really kind of limited our, our choices to like the coast, cities on the coast, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Miami, <laughs> yeah. and then the other coast, Seattle, Portland, right. California, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Like it, we didn't have as much as we we're like, man, the cost of living on the coastal sides is so expensive, but we can't afford a life in like middle America because we just, it wouldn't feel comfortable. No, it would not. And the times we've gone to Michigan or other states, even Florida has felt less safe. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Legislation in Florida is crazy right now. And so we were prioritizing not just actual safety, but our perception of that safety. Yeah. And the weather, the climate. So then we arrived to California. But here's what happened. California is one of those pieces that's clumped into the dream cloud. Yeah. And every time we would think about California, it would also mean, well, this is the house I want to have. Like, could we afford that house? Right. And this is- we don't have a million dollars to buy this house right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. And and this is the career that I want. And Yeah. And it felt like we were disqualifying California, not on its own merits, but on every other dream that we had attached around it. And yeah. so the conversation became about how how do we release this goal f- from every other uh, hope that we have in terms of our, our life together yeah. and make it solely about adding one thing that feels closer to that dream. Right. It's one step. I don't need to take 10 steps at a time. Yes. And it's actually been really kind to us. And I want to talk about discernment at some point, how discernment looks like, because in some ways I feel that 
this longing to to go to that coast has also been reciprocated. Mm. <laughs> it is longed for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or there there's been this meeting. Yeah, like like I I think in my upbringing, I was always taught to pray to God every time I wanted something and to really wait for God to speak to me. And I never really knew what speaking to me would sound like or look like. It seemed that for every person around me, it, it was a different experience. For me, I always felt like I was navigating a broken compass with how I was waiting for God to speak to me. And that's not something that I've come to really understand until recently when I've realized that my discernment process now is less about asking God to open a door that he thinks is the right door for me because it raises questions for me around fatalism. Is everything predetermined? Do I have any kind of agency over my life? And this question about volition, I'm using language. I I think sometimes when I'm talking about an old theology, I stick to the pronouns of the old theology. Yeah. And then when I apply it to to the me now, I change it up, but... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Right now, I'm I'm raising a question from an old theology, right? And I've arrived to a new understanding. But that was the question. Why would a God who is so interested in preserving my individuality and my creativity, my independence, my volition, would also ask me to seed it every time a decision in my life arose? Yeah, and that's one of those things that's like, and I was talking to somebody this week about this, and they were asking about how I, how I go about this process of discernment. And it is very much along the lines of, I can remember the time that I feel like I was the most malleable. Yes to anything that I felt was the voice of God, the most devoid of my own volition, the most kind of emptied of my own will, that was the time that I was the worst off mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially. And I realized, like, I can look back and say experientially, the time when I was supposed to be the most holy is not a time that I felt cared for by the presence of God. I mean, the time I felt the most ready to serve in any capacity was a time that I I physically suffered and mentally, emotionally suffered. So I can't look back on that time with a romantic view and think, that is how life should be lived. Yeah. So along your lines is like, yeah, there is that, there is this need to engage the will and to want something. And I think even as a parent, you, you concede autonomy to your child, right? Maybe when they're very young, you need to make decisions for them because they don't know Putting a fork in a socket will electrocute you. But at some point, you concede and say, you have formed enough of a moral compass, enough of an understanding of the world to be able to make informed choices. And you still might get it wrong sometimes, but it's you can learn from those mistakes and use that to add again to this discernment process that you use to figure out what is the best for my life. 
And so even when we were talking about California and the possibility of like, there were two hospitals that you were choosing between, my whole hopes when we went out, we went out there recently for a wedding. I was the maid of honor. I feel so honored. (laughs) (laughs) It was so much fun. It was was the best. Oh my gosh. But we, we went to, I was like, we need to go see the different hospital campuses. Like, let's actually like put our hands in the dirt and feel it, not literally. But we have to have the experience because the best way to know how to make a decision is to take as much mystery out of the equation as you can possibly take so that you can make an informed decision. And even in this process of us choosing to go back to California, there's still some mystery. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's such a key point that you're using reason to logic through the alternatives and that you're not saying, what do I like is out of the question and what each campus has to offer is out of the question. Right. <laughs> How like, I feel about this space in this community is out of the question. Right, right. Like, yeah. It's all a part of the discernment process. If, if you value and you believe that God values your quality of life quality of life and not just that i I think it's more than that i think if you think that god and you yourself value your personality Mm. the things that you're naturally or like naturally inclined to or interested if you value your own creativity so the the idea that you can author things for yourself and make your life an art If you value your character type, your own skills, like if you value aligning yourself to the things that are a part of who you are. Sure. Or aligning yourself to institutions and activities and careers that also correspond to a set of skills that you have, a set of values that allow you to just step into it and with your fullest sense of self then then the question is a lot more simplified. Instilling values or moral code that would help you to harmonize with an order of love and, and use and draw from you the kinds of blessings around you that would allow you to fulfill your life's purpose. I think one part, and the reason why I say quality of life is because I still don't know what I was made to do. And I think I spent a lot of time in my life trying to discern that. Like, well, I'm good at this or I'm good at that. Like, what am I supposed to be doing in this world? And I and I still don't have an answer. There are a few things that I like to do, but there are some things even that I like to do that I don't like to do all that much. You know? yeah. <laughs> I like to write. I don't want to write eight hours a day. Yeah. But so quality of life for me has been like a, a measurement to say, there is a modicum of, of work that will be done in this world that I have to participate in in this capitalist society to be able to to give myself the kindness that I won't get for free. Yeah. And I do think that there's also like a way that I can trick myself into seeing suffering as a virtue. I could stay in Boston and be like, you know what? Especially if I had like this idea that I'm here on a mission with a purpose, I can tell myself that the ways that I'm suffering or the ways that I feel like, whether it's the cold or whatever, I can say, this is for the glory of God or like there's something 
in this suffering that's going to refine me to be a better person. And I feel like I've gone through the suffering gamut and I've realized like, man, it's so, there are some things that you'll have to do that you don't like. And I think that's suffering enough. I'm going to have to go to work sometimes and some days I'm not going to enjoy it. (laughs) I'm going to have to budget in my life and tell myself that I can't have certain things because I just can't afford it. Like those are like modicums of like what I would find pretty normal ranges of suffering that it's not like, that it's not detrimental to your health. There are times that you might have to do things that you abhor, like being in a confrontation because you have, because you need to, right? Things have come to a boiling point and you need to confront. And that's for me, it would be like a really painful thing to do, but to not live a life based on the merit of suffering is something that I've kind of turned from and said, I need to care for myself and my quality of life. Because when I live my life on the merit of suffering, I don't, I didn't gain anything that Mm -hmm. could be measurable. And of course I could say, well, those treasures are stored up in heaven. (laughs) Right. But at the same time, I just find it very unkind to say all the good things of this life are somewhere else other than here and you will never taste of it. (laughs) You're, you're, Talking about suffering or mission, right, is very natural because those images of Christ on the cross yeah. are kind of very central to the Christian ideology. Right. Yeah. I think I'm most grateful to my queerness and maybe even my role in spiritual care for this dismantling of suffering being intertwined with mission. And can I say, Peter, in Second Peter, I believe he says, those who suffer without a cause are blessed. There's some suffering that's, that's unavoidable. If you want to see Jesus on the cross, it was unavoidable. Like there was no way for him to have removed himself from that moment. You bring up a, a great point. I know a few therapists and we're talking about how trauma works in the being, there are some things that are real, and then there are how those real things impact you. Mm. And you cannot change the things that are external, right? Because they happen outside of your control. So, for example, somebody beating me up right. is not something that I can have much control of. And you didn't manifest it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I might have instigated a fight or whatever, but, but assuming just, you're assuming, walking on the yeah. street and you got mugged, I, right. exactly. <laughs> that is traumatic, and it's it's an external fact. So even nothing that I do internally to work on myself can change that moment. Yeah, that that happened, but how it affects me, how that trauma affects me. I do have some tools that could help me move along in that process, change the way that it affects me. Yeah. And I want to be really careful when I say this because every person has a different story. And so this is, this is not meant as a light statement. It's meant as the hope of therapy, that this would be the endeavor of, because it's internal, we might have more agency. But 
I think some damage is tough. And I want to be mindful when we talk about trauma to always put the disclaimer out there that the suffering that some go through is not their fault and the consequences of it have a lasting impact. Even if they're able to get help, sometimes it's not enough to undo the damage. Absolutely. So, but I, I want to go back to these Christian concepts that tie suffering and mission together because that image of Christ on the cross really encourages a message of like proselytizing and sharing the truth in the world because it came at such a high cost, right? So I get that, but in my role as a chaplain, if you take away this proselytizing, these, this trying to convert people to believe what you believe as part of your spiritual work, you discover something different there. And when you're queer and you take away this sense of mission around who gets to be saved and right. what do they have to do to be saved— then you discover that something else is there. And a a deeper, more profound truth is still available to be shared. I think sometimes religion makes of very broad truths, very specific things that need to become qualifiers for salvation. And I think it can act as blinders to what's fundamental and... And that is love. Like, I think what you're getting at is something I very much relate to, letting the body speak back. Like, that's why we have nerve endings on our toes and our hands, because when we step on a nail and it hurts, we can remove ourselves from it and and get the help that we need. But if we are constantly ignoring our body in stepping on nails and glass and letting our body parts get infected, we're just damaging ourselves. We're not taking the feedback that yeah. needs to happen. And I think even especially LGBTQ members are those people who are trying to give feedback and saying this theology hurts, right? Or this or this part of this theology is, is causing me to suffer. I have to kind of break out and seek wisdom and and also validate that the wisdom that comes from my own experience is important too. Yeah. I I saw a recently like a documentary about like Wrangler jeans <laughs> and how in the 1960s or something, like there were like three pairs of jeans that you could choose from and it made life and shopping so much simpler. And now this guy who grew up during that era now has 30 different types of jeans. And even though his jeans fit better than ever, his perplexity over which jeans to choose has magnified. Because now there are so many choices and so many ways that something can feel good. So it's just, it's interesting because, yeah, we do live, we're fortunate enough in our context, in a society where we can make an astounding amount of autonomous choices and figuring out, sometimes I get paralyzed by what's best. Like, is this the best fitting gene? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this the most, insta- is this the optimum that I can go. But but you came from a culture that told you the best answer for everything 
that, that there yeah. was a right choice, that there was a capital T truth, that there, that that does exist. So to undo that and say there are multiple genes that fit me, and yeah. that they're all great, they're all good, and there's probably <laughs> not going to be a best. And searching for best might actually be more crippling because I have all this anxiety over is this a second best fitting gene? And then it, realizing that best could be best in this minute. And in two minutes, the best gene could be a different one. Yeah. I can give myself that room to grow and to change. And it still be maybe lateral change rather than like progressive. Mm -hmm. Like that sometimes you're choosing between two really good things, not between a good and an evil. Right. And just to kind kind of reflect on a conversation I had this week as we kind of wrap things up. They were asking me like, am I part of a church and like, if I move back to California, will I seek out that type of fellowship? And I was like, at this moment, the answer is no. And it's not just because of what happened over the last couple of years of like me coming out as bi and really being feeling very pushed out of the church in that way. And they're like, well, why can't you just go to like another church that's like affirming? And I'm like, maybe there was a time where that would have felt like enough, where just being around people who wanted to celebrate God or or, their, or talk about their spiritual journey. But it also feels like you're asking me to do more of the gymnastics than for you to have to do the gymnastic or the institution. And I feel like it hasn't been just the last two years, but it's been over the last 10, 12 years that I can see myself 12 years ago be in a place where I was wholly without volition I was the most submitted that I could possibly be to God and really going off of whatever it is, God, that you tell me to do. And what it ended up being is because I didn't have my own will that I wanted, I ended up being very vulnerable and at the mercy of somebody else's will. Somebody who put on kind of a spiritual leadership role who did know what they wanted (laughs) was able to take advantage of the fact that I did not. And so... Even the things that at one point I thought was a holy thing to not have will and to listen to the voice of God really just puts you at a vulnerable position for stronger personalities to come in and move you in a direction. And 10 years, you're downstream and you're like, how did I get here? And something that I really appreciate about our relationship is like, I don't feel like we have a strong will over one another. I don't feel like you have a strong will over me. And I feel like we have two independently developed wills that have to come together and talk things out, (laughs) that no one person is underdeveloped in that Mm -hmm. sense where the other person could take advantage of them and move them in in a direction. And so 10, 12 years has been a process of of me transitioning and developing and moving into a new kind of spiritual relationship one that has gone through many different phases and recreations. And it is funny to me that I feel like the more that I gained a self, the less compatible I was with church. Mm. Like I could fit very well within the local scene, the less, the, the more devoid that I was. And the more that I grew in my own sense of the innate value of women and women's equality, and then moving into my own acceptance of my sexuality and marriage equality, that that became the divide that there was no bridge to bridge. Yeah. And so, but what's interesting is like, now that I have a strong sense 
of self that it really isn't compatible with these former communities. But I don't find myself with a lack of spirituality. I still find even more so this path of growth with God and finding humor and irony and even scripture in just the everyday. So, yeah, I love that you're saying that. And maybe at some point we have the chance to kind of delve into the structure of our relationship in defiance to a hierarchy within a relationship. Like there is no head of this home. Sonny, my dog. (laughs) He really is. (laughs) He determines when we get up, when we eat. (laughs) He's looking at us right now like he's ready for his snack. (laughs) You taught me a lot about the importance of gratitude in our spirituality now. So I think the equivalent to gratitude, which is focused on things already in the present or in the past, would be humility for things that are still in the future and ahead that I know this is not something I can just attain. Transitions are hard. And so whatever stage of transition that you guys are in, I know it's springtime. We are in the springtime of our lives and some days it'll be warmer, some days it'll be colder, but at some point the season will change and will there'll be a period of normalcy yes. for a while. Spikes and are normal. Spikes are normal. Or we'll return to our baseline. We'll return to our baseline at some point. And so that's what I'm looking forward to, that there will be a new normal. Right now it's the tumblings and rumblings, but that's not a constant state that we'll be in forever. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for you all for listening to this week's podcast of Imago Gay. If you guys are enjoying the content, please be sure to rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also leave a direct message in our Instagram at Kendra Arsenault with an X and at Roxanne Marie. Thank you so much for listening in. And we are so glad to find fellowship and community here with you all. So thanks again. Thanks again.